In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at Asperient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Hi, this is Cami. Dr. Michelle Medansky joins us today on Money Tales. Michelle is a digital advertising expert and sought-after media and market research consultant. She's also co-author of the most widely cited research study on gender bias in tech called The Elephant in the Valley. Michelle acknowledges that money isn't a popular discussion topic, and she observes that people definitely don't talk about relationships where women out-earn men, which is even more of a taboo. Today on Money Tales, we go there with Michelle. Michelle authored the first PhD dissertation focused on online advertising. Today, she's a sought-after speaker, as well as a consultant for digital brands and companies promoting inclusiveness and gender equality within their organizations. Hi, this is Sandy. Here are three key Money Tales conversation topics Michelle hits on in this conversation. First, what it's been like for both her and her husband as a result of Michelle contributing more to their family's finances. Second, how opening up money conversations with other breadwinner moms would allow these women to better support and elevate each other. And third, the benefits of having the same money values and the importance of clear communication about finances in any marriage, and especially when the spouses have different earning levels. If you like this episode, be sure to share it with a friend. And don't forget to subscribe to Money Tales and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. At the end of this interview, Cammie and I will discuss how we at Experient approach wealth planning for breadwinner moms. Now, on to our conversation with Michelle Medansky. Hello, Money Tales listeners. This is Cami. I'm here with my co-host, Sandy. I wanted to share with you, I, I came back from another ski trip. I usually don't ski as much as I've done this year. I think it's the COVID hangover. I was skiing with a couple of my girlfriends from business school who have children that are graduating from high school or in college. And what I wanted to share with you, which I thought was so fascinating, were the number of money conversations they were having with their kids while we were away traveling. Really? Oh, yeah. Is that because you were there? or I'd like to think I influenced them, but I think that is life. And that's what I found was so interesting. Makes me think about what we're hoping people will do more of that practice because it becomes so important. Money is such an important part of life, important at that age. It was either FaceTime or text, but there was always some underlying money conversation. And I thought that was just fascinating. And Kemi, were you guys talking about these conversations outside of the ones they were having directly with their children? Yes, we were. It was really fun to break it down and hear their thinking and, and some of the previous conversations they've had to set values and expectations with their children along the way. I love it. 
Let's now introduce our guest today. Welcome, Michelle Medansky to Money Tales. Thank you for having me. We'd like to start things off with you providing a brief introduction to yourself and two or three pivotal moments that influenced you and makes you the person you are today. I am a market research consultant. I have my own business and I'm based in Silicon Valley. I grew up in Chicago and I lived in New York for 12 years and worked in advertising. I have two sons and a husband, and I've been running my own business over 14 years. I will talk about starting your own business as an entrepreneur. The other thing, and the reason you actually know about me is because I, in my free time, do some pro bono work. And one of the areas of interest to me is gender bias in Silicon Valley. So I'm the co-author of a study called The Elephant in the Valley, which is the most cited study about gender bias in Silicon Valley. So that is a passion area of mine. And as a business owner, I'm able to spend my time how I want to. And that is one of the ways that I choose to spend my time. Michelle, tell us your money story. Where did it all begin? I grew up in Great Neck, New York and Highland Park, Illinois, two affluent suburbs, not dissimilar to Menlo Park where I am now, but upper middle class suburbs. My father was a professor. He is retired, but he taught at University of Chicago in the business school. And he also did consulting. He's an econometrician, very comfortable. That said, there's a lot of flashy wealth in both of those areas, which I can also say is true for where we are. And that was not my parents' style. It took a long time before we got the second car. I was the youngest of four girls. So once a year, I would get some new clothes, but I had hand-me-downs for a long part of my life. We were very comfortable. We went on vacation every year to visit our grandparents in Florida. The family of six would all stay with my grandparents in a one-bedroom condo. And often I would bring girlfriends with me And we'd have a great time. I never felt that we were lacking anything, a comfortable lifestyle, but I don't think we had the conversations about money. I think there was always a sense of don't be too flashy about it or don't ask for things that are frivolous. Like asking for the Jordache jeans was a big deal. Oh, and Gloria Vanderbilt too, right? Yeah, yeah. I just had to really choose my moments to maybe get one pair per year. You're growing up having some great money modeling happening for you among your parents. You were comfortable, but there was a lot of affluence around you. It sounds like you're completely comfortable with that, aside from wanting some more of the designer clothing. I was thinking about this and there were the people who got a new car when they turned 16. And I knew that wasn't going to be me, but I probably even had an allowance. I don't remember what that was, but I always worked and I always had money. In high school, I worked at a company office. I hired some of my girlfriends there and I kept making more and more money over time. And then I worked at the board of trade every summer while I was in college. And I would save that money. When I was in college, one of my best side gigs was I went to the Bahamas for spring break and I called the travel agent and said, we want to book this trip for eight people. And they said, will you be our rep at college? If you sell 20 trips, you get to go for free. And I sold 32 trips. So I got paid to go to the Bahamas. All the overage was spent on buying my friend's beer while I was there. In grad school, I tutored statistics. So I had a sliding scale for the full-time MBAs versus the evening MBAs versus the executive MBAs. I was always comfortable. I never was lacking for money, but not lavish. 
Say more about the sliding scale. Was this all based because you knew that your clients had different capacity to pay for the same services? Full-time MBA students that were not earning money. The night school students were working full-time. Oftentimes, their companies were paying for their school. They had the income at the moment. And then the executive MBAs were only going to school on the weekends, and their companies were for sure paying. I actually tutored Charles Schwab's son, claim to fame. Tell us more about pricing your services, whether you're in college or grad school with the sliding scale or where you are today. How do you think about pricing your services? I'm getting better at that over time. I'm learning that with my own business, focusing on the value as opposed to certainly moving away from any hourly. When people try to say, how do you justify that? I focus on the value as opposed to this is how many hours I'm working on average. It's really hard to even keep track of hours, I find. Slack and email, I don't know how lawyers do that, but those kind of increments is really hard when you're managing multiple clients throughout the day. Michelle, tell us about Elephant in the Valley and how money plays a role in the research and the work you've done in those efforts. Elephant in the Valley stemmed from the Ellen Powell trial, which Ellen Powell, for those of us in Silicon Valley, was at Kleiner Perkins, and she filed a lawsuit against Kleiner Perkins for gender discrimination. And during the trial, another partner at Kleiner Perkins, Trey Vasallo, had to testify that she was harassed by the same partner that Ellen Powell was harassed by. Trey did all the right things, told the organization, she and the guy ended up leaving. But because she would subpoena it and talked about it, all these people came out of the word work afterwards and said, oh my God, thank you for sharing your story. Something similar to happen to me. While this stuff was happening to Trey, she didn't talk to anybody about it. And she felt all alone. And she just had no realization that this was happening. The research itself was really focused on gender bias from sexual harassment to not feeling like you have a seat at the table to microaggressions. The one thing that we failed to do in the first survey is ask about pay equality. I subsequently, in 2018, did a separate study, and I asked whether women in Silicon Valley felt that they were paid equally, and the answer is no. About 65% felt that they were paid less than their male peers. Similar numbers in advertising, oftentimes women were able to say, so-and-so like left his tax statement on the printer, and I was able to verify how much money they made. The other thing that happens to women is one of your podcast, I was just listening to it. One woman said, oh, you and your husband make enough. So employers think about the equation of it's okay if we fire you because you don't have a family to support, your husband's working, whereas this other guy has a stay-at-home wife. And if we fire him, he's on the street. It's a way in which there are biases. And what are you hoping will come of putting a spotlight on these biases? And how do we make changes in our world and get to equality and equity when it comes to money in particular between different genders? So just earlier today, I was listening to Mark Benioff speak. I did some research around women of color in the workplace with the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative and an organization called Information. And Salesforce was one of the sponsors, but they walk the walk and they did a study of their employee base and really trying to understand to make sure that women were paid equally. We just need more examples of that. I always say, because so many of the men I know in Silicon Valley are progressive, you know, mentor women, they sponsor women. They were so surprised by the statistics that I shared. I feel like 
they just don't really understand how these microaggressions can build up over time. Just making people aware of it will help change the conversation. The other thing that we're seeing, especially now, is that women like myself are leaving the workplace and starting our own things because we're not finding a seat at the table at these big organizations. There's going to continue to be a brain drain. The pandemic has obviously made it worse. Would you share, just to make sure we all are on the same page, what's a microaggression and maybe an example or two? Microaggressions are things that by themselves might seem like they're not such a big deal, but over time they gravitate. I just heard one today about an African-American woman whose boss looked at her orange fingernails and said, oh, you people really like your bright colors. There was a female programmer who had other engineers watching the World Cup on a TV, and it was right by her desk. And so they were all watching this every day, and it was really distracting. She went to HR to say, like, can we not have this happen? And she became known as the person who complained about that. Some other woman said that every time people talk about her, they would talk about the great cookies she makes, as opposed to her great code, focusing on the wrong thing. Giving your example before of, oh, it doesn't matter. Your husband makes a lot of money. Yeah, not being sensitive to differences. Will you tell us what it was like to leave corporate America and start your own business? My father was a professor and was also a consultant. My mother was a stay-at-home mom. She was very involved with lots of philanthropic organizations. And she did get a career after my parents got divorced when she was in her 50s. But I think that my father, working from home, so on the few days he would go into the University of Chicago, he was there. But otherwise, he would work from home. He would wear jeans. One of the great things that the university paid for all of the tenured faculty's children's tuition up to the amount of University of Chicago's tuition. So four children for four years, I got out of college with no debt. Everything was fully paid for. That was amazing. I went to a PhD program. I had a $6,000 a year stipend, which was actually enough to live on. But I think that my father's entrepreneurialism, I said, hey, that's a great way to live. Like you are able to work from home sometimes, you can dress casually. He traveled for business sometime, but not all the time. He taught me how to program when I was in middle school. So I was always very comfortable with computers and comfortable being one of the only women in advanced math classes, for example. That made me feel more comfortable. The first time that I started working for myself, I had worked in advertising in New York. I was at a big ad agency, got into interactive advertising really early on, like before Netscape, AOL and CompuServe days. And I kind of shifted my career from pure market research to internet stuff. And this was the dot-com boom. So I would hire people on my team to work for me. They'd work for me for six months and they'd leave the agency and double their salary. This is one of the difficulties of ad agencies is the average raise is like 5% per year. So it's just really hard to get raises. The only way people do it is leaving the agencies and then going back. And it's really inefficient. Long story short, I finally left the agency and I went to what I refer now to as my, my dot-com bust. I went to the small agency Two weeks after I got there, found out they really had no money and they had no business hiring me. When they got absorbed by somebody else, I didn't want to start a new job. I had just left this big agency and I was finishing my dissertation. So I had been all but dissertation for nine years. 
And I had moved to New York and worked in advertising and all the research was done. I just needed my advisor to actually read the document. I said, I can't start another job. So I started consulting at that time. It worked out really well, made more money consulting than I had at my full-time job. I was able to then leverage that to get hired by one of my clients before the dot-com bust. So that worked out well for me. So that was the first time I consulted. Medansky New Media was the name of my consulting firm. You are married with two kids. How is money handled in your home? Let me back up to my relationship with my husband, Travis. So Travis and I met while I was at University of Chicago. I was getting my PhD in the business school. He was an undergraduate getting a philosophy degree. So we always joke that he is qualified to drive a philosophy truck. It took him four years to ask me out, which was good because then he could drink legally. He was also on the kind of seven-year undergrad plan. By the time we actually started dating, he was working for the university full-time in the computer center, as was I. That was one of my side gigs. He was taking one class at a time. We moved in together. I was 25. He was 23. We moved in together January 1st. And in March, I got a call about a job in New York in advertising. The woman who hired me, who still remains a good friend, always tells a story that when she called to talk to me about the job and she heard a man's voice on the answering machine, she assumed there's no way I'm going to get this woman to leave Chicago. And you talk Travis into coming? As he tells the story, I didn't really consult him, but I moved there in April. (laughs) I did move his belongings, his big belongings with me because the company paid for the move. And he joined me a year later. But we started our relationship 25, 23. We were both in school. Neither of us had money. He came and moved to New York eventually. He actually ended up working for the same ad agency that I did. And his starting salary, he was in the IT group, was the same as my starting salary, which kind of pissed me off because I had my MBA at that point and almost a PhD. But that's part of the gender income inequality. Were you and Travis talking about that at the time? Oh, yeah. I'm not going to be mad because I want him to make as much money as possible. But it was like, really? How is this possible that I'm in this very specialized group doing marketing sciences? I guess IT was a little bit hot. But be that as it may, we started out making the same salary. Neither of us went into the relationships with money. Very soon, we just merged all of our checking accounts. I think I added him onto my credit card when he was traveling for work and realized he only had a $500 limit on his credit card move things together. The good thing is that we both have the same values when it comes to money. This is incredibly important in relationships. Things that we value are travel and food. We don't need the Jordache jeans, (laughs) whatever the equivalents are today. There are things that we want to spend money on and that there's other things that we want to conserve on. So I think that at the very heart of it, we haven't had disagreements about what we spend money on particularly. What's happened to your and Travis's respective earnings potential since that time over 20 years ago? So we started our careers in advertising, same level. Fast forward to 2003, I moved here to run market research for Yahoo. That was a big deal. Our kids at the time were two and three. We owned a brownstone in Brooklyn, which was beautiful. We had just redone the kitchen. We were ready to raise our kids and have them go through high school in Brooklyn. I got this job offer. So at the time that we moved, Travis was not working. He was in between jobs. 
while he was working, my income was 3x his income. It was at that point, a big disparity. I had kind of ridden the dot-com boom and moved up in my career, probably because I left and started my own thing. But my career trajectory went in one way. When we moved here, the decision was, do we get a nanny? We had a nanny in New York, or do you stay home for a bit? At that point, we had to sell our house in Brooklyn. We had to buy a place in the Bay Area. We had to find preschool, all that stuff. We made the decision that he would stay home. We did not talk about how long would he stay home and what would that re-entry look like? There was a few years of, hey, this is great. I'm on this roller coaster at Yahoo, drinking out of the fire hose. I've always traveled like 40% of the time. So having him handle things was great. The part that was difficult was having him get back into the workforce. It's a lot harder for men who have gaps in their resumes than women. And he's managed to reinvent himself and now does clinical trials management in the pharmaceutical industry. But there were definitely some tough years and lessons learned. This is one of the reasons I'm passionate about talking about breadwinner moms. As you guys were saying, people don't talk about money. People definitely don't talk about relationships where women out-earn men. That's even more of a taboo. I'm doing research. I'm hoping to publish a book on this topic. I've talked to over 500 breadwinner moms and their partners. So I have a lot to say on that about what works, what doesn't work, and things to think about. Could you say a little bit more about that? I'd love to know how are you and Travis navigating this, but also what's your study uncovered? Can I throw in a question too? I'm really curious to know if you were having conversations about this whole change in arrangements when it was happening with your friends. Somewhat with my friends, but one of the challenges that breadwinner moms and their partners have is that they feel completely alone. Three and four breadwinner moms and their partners have very few or no friends in similar situations to themselves. I was at Yahoo for over a year before I found out that my boss was a breadwinner mom, that several of the other people on our teams were breadwinner moms, and nobody was talking about it. Sue Decker, who was the CFO of Yahoo at the time, her husband was a stay-at-home dad. People were not talking about it. And so you feel isolated from my research, especially the men, don't have a support system in place. You hear things like, how does he do that? I can never do that. Or what does he do all day? Microaggressions. Yeah, major microaggressions. Or wouldn't he be happier if he was working? So you hear all of that. And then you hear Mr. Mom jokes and who wears the pants in the family. Or you're at the cocktail party where they would ask Travis what he does. And he would say, I'm a stay-at-home dad. And they would say, Great. Oh, that's so great. And then kind of move on because they literally don't know what to say. I think that there's a lot of challenges in terms of just having discussions about it and societal acceptance. Again, even in super liberal places like Park Slope, Brooklyn, or Palo Alto, these conversations are not happening. Within your research, do you have statistics on how many breadwinner moms are out there in the world? Let's clarify here. So, breadwinner mom, Pew coined that term. And it could include any mom who is out earning her partner, or it could also include single moms. In the case that I'm using it, it's for heterosexual partnered couples. Four in 10 children today are born to single moms. Take them out of the equation. They're all breadwinner moms. They have to be, God bless every single one of them. The ones who are partnered, currently it's 24% of the women are out earning. And that is going to continue to increase. 
58% of college graduates today are female. So if you look at some of these liberal arts colleges, if you go to like Bennington, it's like 70% female. There are more women graduating from college and getting advanced degrees also, and they're more poised to earn more money. In some societies, the men are okay with that. In others, it's not macho to not be making more money. I heard from women saying like, I am having a hard time finding someone because they're intimidated by me. More and more conversations have to happen for the next generation so that they can see role models. If you think about all the TV shows where they have working moms, I don't see any where there's a positive relationship between a working mom who's clearly out earning her spouse. I don't know if you guys watch Pretty Little Lies, but the Laura Dern character comes off as very aggressive. And then she has this spouse who's cheating on her with their nanny. Reinforcing the stereotypes. Yeah, reinforcing the stereotypes. And by the way, this is the other thing. If you do a search for breadwinner moms, some of the headlines that come up, this is from the New York Times. When wives earn more than husbands, nobody likes to admit it. Guys who do housework get less sex. That's from Slate. When husbands don't work, marriages fall apart fatherly. So there's all this academic research also showing that partners where the woman makes more money are more likely to end in divorce or have the husband cheat on the wife. It's just depressing. I know plenty of marriages where it's all positive, but those are not what's getting portrayed. Yeah, the media is definitely taking a different view on it. Since you and your husband were feeling isolated, you were in a financial situation where you were making more money than him and you were both raising children together. What impact do you see this having on your children today who are nearly adults? My younger son, who we'll talk about later when we talk about the next financial conversation, has said, I want to be a stay-at-home dad. So I think that this next generation are going to be much more amenable to gender equality. And I am optimistic about that. I think that it's good, not just for our kids, but for the kids in the neighborhood to see different types of relationships and more dads at the playgrounds or more dads on the field trips. My husband always jokes that since he always volunteered for the field trips, I would always put the most difficult kid in the class with him because I figured that the dad can handle it. But you are right. It's great to see this and it will change the tide the more these experiences are played out that are positive. And this next generation sees it and starts talking more about it. I love seeing that. While you're talking, I was just thinking through my group of friends and it occurred to me that many of us are breadwinner moms. And I think it just sort of happened that way. And there are feelings you get as a breadwinner mom where, and I'm curious to get your take on this, Michelle, where you kind of feel like you need to be doing it all. But if you're concentrating on your career, you're just not able to do all the typical mom activities. Where I've seen breadwinner moms and their partners not work out is because the breadwinner mom feels like she has to do everything or everything has to be perfect. And the constant discussion around roles and responsibilities and who's doing what has to happen. For example, while Travis was not working, he was paying all of our bills and dealing with our investments. Once he started working and I started consulting, even though my earnings are higher now, I've taken on that responsibility. I'm kind of better at it. And it just fits in my wheelhouse. Whereas again, I don't cook. I do order through Instacart. 
I've taken over some of the shopping, but it's like me going out to Instacart and just buying stuff as opposed to like going to the store. He does the laundry. But so many of the women I talked to would have a husband who stayed at home, but wasn't picking up the other roles and responsibilities in the house. And then they just got pissed off and the relationship could not recover. The biggest advice I give to younger couples is to just continually have the conversations about what's working and what's not, and the expectations for what each one should be doing. We did not navigate that as well as we could have when the kids were younger. So my younger self wishes I had had more of a conversation about, okay, if it takes you a really long time to find a job, what are you going to do? In the meantime, whether it is volunteer work or substitute teaching, et cetera, you need to have those kind of conversations about what you bring into the partnership. With every year I learn, the more we talk, the more we converse and listen, I guess conversations require the listening as well, the better we are to handle and to move forward together. I feel the same way. Hey, Michelle, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? So I have two sons who are in college. One is graduating in a few months and he has a passion area. Last year during the pandemic, he took the year off and he started creating Braille for indigenous languages. He's been written up in newspapers in like 10 different countries the Braille that he created for the Uyghurs was just accepted by the World Uyghur Congress. This is awesome. But he has not figured out a way to earn a living using that. So I fully applaud his entrepreneurialism and his ability to network and get things done. But the conversation is, if you work for a tech company or someplace that allows you to spend some of your time doing passion areas, that might be a better route than trying to piece together different grants. The challenge of balancing your passion versus ability to make money. And the second is my other son. The older one is not a spender. The younger one is a spender. And he's now living in Tel Aviv, which is really expensive. (laughs) Keeping to a budget has been a challenge. Before this, he was living in Shanghai. And you don't want to leave your child with not enough money for emergencies. It's different if you're in a U.S. college and you're on the meal plan, so you know they have a place to stay and there's a meal plan. But when they don't have that and it's really not easy to get money over, he needs to get better at budgeting. These are great conversations. They bring me back to how I started this with my conversations with my friends at similar stages of lives with their kids and budgeting and knowing the right balance. Thank you so much, Michelle Medansky, for joining us on Money Tales sharing your journey, talking with us about Elephant in the Valley, being a breadwinner mom, sharing both your experience and your research. It was really priceless. Thank you. You're welcome. Super fun. Wow, Sandy, what a conversation we just had with Michelle. I was really drawn to her talking about breadwinner moms, as well as her husband being a stay-at-home dad and the challenges each one faced as a breadwinner mom or stay-at-home dad. I enjoyed this conversation too, Cami, And I just want to give Michelle a special shout out. I heard her on another podcast a couple years back, and she talked about breadwinner moms in that conversation briefly. And I put a pin in that. And I was so excited when she said she'd come onto Money Tales and talk to us about breadwinner moms. So thanks again for being here, Michelle. The conversation with Michelle got me thinking about how we serve breadwinner moms within our wealth planning work at Experian. 
as I sat back and considered this, Cami, what occurred to me was the planning for any couple is the same. Our approach is the same, regardless of who's bringing in more earnings or bringing in more assets. And what I mean by that is our process starts with discovering who the clients are. I'm speaking here in the case of a couple. We want to make sure we understand their values, their vision for their future. We want to understand the roles that each of them plays within their family, not only in terms of the financial resources, but also the non-financial resources. And you mentioned that in terms of Michelle's discussion with her husband and how her husband was taking on a lot of the responsibilities related to the children and the finances and other things while Michelle was working hard. And even I heard comment about harder for men to get back into the workforce if they have a gap in their resume. I think about that in your conversations with clients. Yeah. So we're really understanding who the clients are. We're understanding what their vision is for the future. What does it look like? Is someone planning to return to work? Is there a plan change in earnings at some point in time? We're understanding what their responsibilities are within the family's finances. And of course, one of the things that we do is try to to get involved and take a lot of work off of the couple's plate so that we can free up their time to focus on other things that are important to them. Importantly, a role that we play in the planning work is to monitor progress along the way. And again, this is true regardless of who is bringing in more earnings, who owns more of the assets. We want to monitor the client's joint plan and make sure we're helping them understand when they reach certain milestones. What I've seen working with many breadwinner mothers over the years is that when the family gets to the point where they have achieved financial independence, and for most of our clients, that means being in an enviable position of having created or accumulated enough resources so that they can not rely on future earnings in order to achieve all of their spending goals. I've seen women take different paths. Some are so excited about their career and where they're going that they continue to pour into their careers. Others decide, hey, we've reached our goals. I'm going to step away. I'm going to spend more time with the family, or I'm going to spend more time working on philanthropic endeavors. I'm not going to focus as much time and energy on bringing more resources into the family because we don't need it. And the same is true when we're working with breadwinner dads. It doesn't matter from a planning perspective, the source of the earnings and the assets, like I've been saying, but it is important to understand how each family member is thinking about those resources and making sure that they are on the same page and have joint visions and goals they're working toward together. Planning work We have a saying at Asperient that it creates context and clarity. And to me, it also ties nicely to what Michelle brought to life about the importance about conversations. And that if you have this plan and you have the context and clarity, it makes for much more dynamic, fluid conversations. That's also an important point that she brought up in this conversation. Absolutely. It was so fun to talk about this topic. It's one that I see all the time in the work that I do. I see it, as I mentioned, in our conversation with Michelle among my friends, but it's not one that people spend a lot of time talking about. So I'm thankful for Michelle bringing that conversation to Money Tales. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Money Tales. If the money conversation you heard today inspired you to continue your own money conversation or gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters that are important to you, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Experian. 
You can find us on our website, aspirant.com. We've got a start a dialogue section. You can also email Sandy and me at podcasts at You've been listening to Money Tales, hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder. To subscribe to the show on your favorite platform or to increase your money mojo via their blog, Fathom, head on over to aspirant.com slash podcasts. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Money Tales. Money Tales.